Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at, we'll start with verse 31. We'll refer to 28 a little later. Uh, I know that it says we'll, we'll begin there in the bulletin, but we're going to focus in on these last few verses of Romans chapter 8. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning and write its truth upon our hearts. Pilgrim's Progress is... I think the second most published book in the history of the world next to the Bible, written by John Bunyan uh, several hundred years ago. It's an allegory. It follows a character, Christian, in the first part, uh, follows Christian on his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's a picture of the pilgrimage or the journey of the Christian life from conversion all the way to death and heaven. Well, Throughout the book, you get lessons on the Christian life uh, as Christian encounters enemies and other, other believers and, and all the adventures that they have along the way. There are spiritual lessons all throughout the book. I highly commend it to you. Towards the end of Christian's journey in the first part of the book, he is being accompanied by another believer named Hopeful. So Christian and Hopeful have come to the end of their journey together and they are very close to the celestial city. They can see it from afar. And the only thing between them and the city is a river. The only problem is this river has no bridge. There's no ferry. There's no way to get across except through the river. Now there are two men on the other side who are there to receive them. But how are they to get across? I want to pick the reading up there. The pilgrims then, especially, especially Christian, began to despond in their mind and look this way and that, but no way could be found by them by which they might escape the river. Then they asked the men if the waters were all of a depth. They said no, yet they could not help them in that case. For, said they, you shall not find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. Then they addressed themselves to the water, and entering, Christian began to sink. 
And crying out to his good friend Hopeful, he said, I sink in deep waters, the billows go over my head, and all his waves go over me. Selah. Then said the other, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. Then said Christian, Ah, my friend, the sorrows of death have compassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian so that he could not see before him. Also here, he in a great measure lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. But all the words that he spoke still tended to discover that he had horror of mind and heart fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in at the gate. Here also, as they that stood by perceived, he was much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins that he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. It was also observed that he was troubled with apparitions of hobgoblins and evil spirits, Forever and anon he would intimate so, so much by words. Hopeful, therefore, had much ado to keep his brother's head above water. Yea, sometimes he would be quite gone down, and then ere a while he would rise up again half dead. Hopeful did also endeavor to comfort him, saying, Brother, I see the gate and men standing by to receive us. But Christian would answer, It is you, it is you they wait for. For you have been hopeful ever since I knew you. And so have you, said he to Christian. Ah, brother, said he, surely if I was right, he would now arise to help me. But for my sins he hath brought me into the snare and hath left me. Then said hopeful, my brother, you have quite forgot the text where it is said of the wicked. There are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not troubled as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. These troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you. Whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. Then I saw in my dream that Christian was in a muse a while, to whom also Hopeful added these words, Be of good cheer, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. And with that, Christian break out with a loud voice, Oh, I see him again, and he tells me, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. Then they both took courage, and the, and the enemy was after that as still as a stone until they were gone over. Christian therefore presently found ground to stand upon, and so it followed that the rest of the river was but shallow. Thus they got over. Well, frustration, discouragement, guilt, fear, worry, doubt. Christian experienced all of these in these final moments in his Christian walk. How about you? Do these characteristics mark your Christian life? Frustration, discouragement, guilt, fury, fear, worry, and doubt. Or are you like hopeful? your life marked by confidence, assurance, peace, and joy, even in the midst of trouble and trial? Would your life be described as, Paul describes it here, as more than conquerors? Well, I have a hunch that, like 
me, many of you, uh, at least some of the time, are like Christian in your walk with the Lord. You are discouraged, you're worried, you're weighed down with anxieties about different things. Well, there's a wonderful sentence in this passage that I read to you. Uh, It says, when Christian first got into the water, it says he lost his senses so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of those sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. Along the way, as Pilgrim met temptation and trials and difficulties, he was refreshed. He was refreshed by God's word and encouragement along the way. But in this moment, he was having trouble remembering all the things that he had experienced before, the good times he had being encouraged in the Lord. And I'm willing to say that most everybody here who has been walking with the Lord any amount of time knows that that's sometimes the case. It's hard to remember those sweet times with the Lord when you're going through a difficult time. The text before us, Romans 8, is some of those sweet refreshments from the Lord. Chapter 8, in its entirety, is possibly the most comforting passage in all of Scripture. It's certainly one of them, if not the top one. And as we have studied our way through chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus on up to the very ending. It's like we're ascending a mountain of comfort. And these verses, 31 through 39, are the pinnacle of that comfort. So I hope today that you, are, you experience sweet refreshment as we reflect on these wonderful words of the Apostle Paul. I want to make three points today, three, three relatively brief points. Christian confidence comes from having a, a gracious God on our side. Christian confidence comes from having a righteous judge justifying us. And Christian confidence comes from having all circumstances working for our good. Now, first of all, Christian confidence, assurance, uh, lack of fear, encouragement comes from having a gracious God on our side. Paul begins by saying or asking, what shall we say to these things? Now, he's referring back to the previous couple of verses. Verse 29 through 30, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he's talking about salvation from beginning to end. From foreknowledge, when God before time began, knows intimately those people who are his. He predestined them. He secures their destiny and he executes it throughout their lives until they reach glorification, justifying them, sanctifying them, or calling them to himself, sanctifying them, and finally glorifying them. It's it's going to happen. All those aspects of our salvation are as good as done. Paul uses the words in past tense, if you'll notice there. They're glorified, he says. Justified, called, justified, glorified, as if it's already happened when it hasn't. But it's as good as done already. So what he's about to argue in 31 through 39, what shall we say to these things? He's working out 
the way we ought to think about these things. You know, why should we have great encouragement and confidence and courage in the midst of even trials? Because God, the sovereign God, uh, he, salvation is all his. He is the one who has done it from first to last. And the details of it are worked out for us. He says, if God is for us, verse 31, who can be against us? Now, if we just ask the question, who can be against us? Well, there's a lot in this passage. There's a lot of things that are against us. The world, our flesh, uh, the devil's against us. We have the, the different uh, aspects that he talks about. You know, the famine, sword, uh, all the perils that we face, trials, tribulations. Yes, there's lots of things against us, but he doesn't just ask who's against us. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? The situation Paul envisions is one in which God is for us since he has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified us. This being so, who can be against us? To that question, there's no answer. No one can be against us. All the powers of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail because God is on our side and no one is more powerful than God. No evil can ultimately stand against the believer. And he fleshes that out for us in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Look, if God is going to go, if God the Father goes to the great lengths on our behalf to not spare his son but deliver him up for us, well then certainly he will graciously give us all things. He will not also with him graciously give us all things. The greatest gift that God the Father gave us was Jesus Christ. If he's given us that great gift, then what gift will he withhold from us? He's already spared no expense. Anything else is, is small in comparison to him giving his son for us, delivering him up for us. Now when he talks about all things, he's talking about verse Uh, those verses that we read before. The salvation, the complete and total package of salvation. He's going to give it all to us. It's guaranteed. If we put it into context, we see that God has gone to great lengths to save us and he's going to make sure that that which he has planned and put in motion is going to come to fruition. So we can have confidence that God is on our side. But how often do we think the opposite? God is against me. Those are the devil's lies, trying to discourage us. We need to remind us to be refreshed by the fact that if God is for us, no one can stand against us. Now the second thing he says is that Christian confidence comes from having a righteous judge justifying us. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is the language of the courtroom. Can any, anyone come and accuse God's people? No. Because it is God who justifies. He's the highest court in the land. (laughs) He's the highest court in the universe. No other court, no other lawyer, no one can bring a charge against God's elect because God has declared his people justified. 
righteous in his sight. And if the, the ultimate judge, the ultimate judge declares you not guilty, forgiven, cleansed, righteous in his sight, then it matters not what anyone else says. You have the, the greatest authority declaring you not guilty. Who is to condemn? Well, there is no one to condemn. If the highest court in the land frees you, no one can condemn you. And then he fleshes it out for us, just as he did in the first point. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised. Why should we be justified? Because Christ Jesus died for us. Christ Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Christ Jesus fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. And he, he credits that to us by faith. He took our sin upon himself. He puts his righteousness into our accounts so that we can stand before a holy God, completely holy, based on his work. It was Christ Jesus who died. He died for our justification. He was raised for our justification, the scripture says. And he is currently at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Isn't that wonderful? Christ is at the ultimate position of authority and dominion. That's what it means to be at the right hand of God. There is none higher. He is in the ultimate position of authority and dominion, and he is praying for his people. He is praying for you today if you are his child. He is interceding for you. So who can condemn you? Christ is for you. God the Father is for you. And they're consciously and continuously acting on your behalf. So we should have confidence because no one can condemn us. Back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no possibility of condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't even come up on the radar anymore because God is the one who justifies. But we often wallow in our guilt. In our struggle with sin, back to Romans 7, it's difficult to see ourselves as being acceptable to God. We fall into to the wrong way of thinking, into thinking that it's our good deeds that merit God's favor, God's smile. It's all Christ. That's what really brings God's favor and God's smile to us. It's nothing that we do. We don't merit that at all. It's a free gift. God has done it all from beginning to end, verses 29 and 30. God has done it. It has nothing to do with our works. It's all his works. And there we can, therefore we can have confidence knowing that if we have Christ, then we are not condemned. We are justified. Now finally, thirdly, Christian confidence comes from having all circumstances working for our good. And really all of this is about verse 28, uh, flowing out of verse 28, uh, where, where Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul fleshes that out by saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now you might think when you're going through tribula tribulation and you might be tempted when you're going through distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword that Jesus doesn't love you anymore. 
But that's not true based on verse 28. All things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That word tribulation and distress, they're synonyms, they're different words, but their root is uh, similar in that it, it means being pressed uh, or stressed, pressure, uh, stress. You know, maybe we're not going through what we would call tribulation or distress in the sense being persecuted for our faith, but we certainly face the stress and the pressure of trying to live uh, the Christian life in a world that is hostile to us. And increasingly so, it looks like persecution will be coming. And he even talks about famine and nakedness. You know, we have certain needs, food, clothing, and shelter. Well, that's two of the three right there. No food, no clothing. Even if that happens to you, where you don't even have the necessities of life, that does not mean that Christ has abandoned you. Even if they come at you with a sword, it doesn't mean that you don't have the love of Christ if you're a believer today. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. He quotes Psalm 44 here. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you look at the, the whole psalm there, it, it's an interesting psalm. It's, it's pretty unique in the Psalter in that it, it speaks at the beginning of the psalm uh, about how Everything they have, the people of God have, is because, of, because God has done it. It's not because of their power, their might, or their armies, or their horses. They are attributing everything to the Lord. We are who we are because of you, God, the psalmist says. But then he says, but you have abandoned us. You know, our armies have gone out and you've not gone with us. And he's crying out, why? Why, oh Lord, please return. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We, we, and he even goes so far as to say, we have not been unfaithful to you. We have kept your word, but yet you have caused us to go through these trials, these defeats. That's, that's a perfect verse to be quoting here, uh, Psalm 44, because that's exactly what Paul's talking about. If you're going through tribulation, if you're going through distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, even if you've been perfectly faithful, sometimes that happens. But it does not mean that God doesn't love you, that Christ doesn't love you, because nothing can separate you from the love of God, from the love of Christ. No, he says, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, you can't make a stronger statement than that. That's about as strong as it gets. Not anything in all of creation, no matter how powerful, no matter how celestial, no matter what it is, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God does not come upon you because of your own merit, of your own righteousness, of your own good deeds, of you having earned it. It is all a free gift of God's grace 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you put your trust in Christ today, you can have this confidence of knowing, knowing for certain that you have a gracious God on your side, that the righteous judge has declared you not guilty and that you are justified in his sight. And you can be certain that all the circumstances of your life, no matter how bad they might be, that does not mean that Christ has abandoned you. According to verse 28, it actually means that he loves you. He's actually taking you on a journey, on a pilgrimage, and he's making you everything that he wants you to be. He's using even your sin. Mind-blowing as it is, he can use even your sin for that purpose of bringing you into a deeper relationship with himself. Tim Keller sums this up very nicely. He says in his Bible study on Romans, the purpose of the questions, you know, there's five, six questions actually in this passage. He says the purpose of the questions is to almost beat us out of our disbelief that we are saved totally by grace and that we are therefore completely safe and should face life without any fear. It is incredible, relentless, intense logic. It is logic on fire. Paul is saying, think. Are you afraid? Well, then you aren't thinking. Are you worried? You aren't thinking. Are you guilty? You aren't thinking. Look at the logic of free grace and justification. These aren't dry doctrines. They are life itself. And if you are not living with overwhelming assurance and power, you haven't really understood them. So to go back to the beginning of verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What will we say to these things? How will we react to these? What is our response to these things, to the free grace of God? Well, it should be a sweet refreshment to us in our journey. It should be an encouragement in our trials, in the pressures that we face. It should be a a lifting up of our spirits as we feel downtrodden. God is for us. No one can be against us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we, we do pray that we would be encouraged today by your word. That you would help us place our confidence squarely upon you. And Lord, we pray that that uh, confidence upon you would encourage us, inspire us to, to love and serve you better. Not because we're trying to earn your favor, but because we have your favor. Lord, forgive us for our many sins. We are well aware of how far short we fall, but we thank you. We thank you with everlasting gratitude that it's not based upon our works. If it were so, we would, we would definitely be lost. There would be no hope. But Lord, through Christ, you have done what we could not do. You provide what we couldn't do ourselves. And So Lord, we pray that you would grant us a deeper faith, a deeper understanding of the gospel, a deeper embracing of it in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.